as Irish American politicians and Italian American politicians and Jewish American politicians and German American politicians, all of whom come from families that were immigrants, are deciding that instead of honoring their ancestors, who had to go through the kind of denunciation that was untrue and unfair back then, are turning around and being the same irresponsible, cruel, hostility-ridden people relative to the latest wave of immigrants. Israel today envisions Gaza and the West Bank the same way that the apartheid regime envisioned its own so-called Bantustan when these sprawling regions were fundamentally deprived of basic political rights. We're telling the Women's March that you cannot have a conversation about rape culture without black women. This is a takeover. Not without black women! Not without black women! Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And for this show in late January 2018, Donald Trump is in Davos, Switzerland at the World Economic Forum among the world globalist elite that he bashed during his presidential campaign. One more Trump about face, just like the about face on not engaging in interventionist wars or regime change in other countries just like the about face on supporting Haitians or on not cutting Medicaid or on not having the time to play golf. In Trump's absence, D.C. feels a little lighter. The sun is shining today. The air seems a little cleaner with just a whiff of that bad air remaining from his slander against the entire continent of Africa or his sacrifice of the lives of immigrants for political fodder. But he'll be back. Later in the show, I'll speak with economist Richard Wolff about the economics behind the immigration catastrophe we are left with, and about the most important story that you've probably never heard of. We'll also hear from Gerald Horn on the international scene and other voices, unheard voices here, marking the anniversary of the historic Women's March that just occurred. All that is coming up in this another jam-packed show. And first, our headlines. This week, centrist Democrats joined with Republicans in approving a budget that will fund the government until February 8th. The approval broke a promise by Democrats that no budget deal would be made until legislation for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA, was passed to protect 800,000 immigrants brought to the United States as children. Undeterred, immigrants and advocates continued to press legislators on Capitol Hill this week, occupying offices and staging demonstrations On Wednesday, members of United We Dream staged an action in the rotunda of the Russell Senate office building. My name is Jose. I'm from Tampa. I am here because my girlfriend and my sister are DACA recipients, and I'm tired of them living life on on a reapplying basis and living with that uncertainty. But I'm also here for myself and my brother, who are DREAM eligible, and I'm here to say to the Republican Party, you're not going to kill our dreams. Six members with United We Dream were arrested for civil disobedience at the office of Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, who the protesters said had caved to Mitch McConnell with only a promise on future votes on DACA legislation. They said more than 17,000 young people are currently at risk of deportation 
with 122 more people added with each day of inaction. Now, switching to the urgent issue of health care, more than a million people tuned into a national Medicare for All town hall on Tuesday that Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont broadcasted exclusively online outside the control of corporate news outlets. On the nearly two-hour program, health professionals said that tens of thousands of Americans are dying every year because we don't have reliable access to health care. This is Stan Brock, founder of Remote Area Medical, a traveling medical service that provides free health care, followed by Dr. Claudia M. Fegan, chief medical executive of the Cook County Medical Center of Chicago. We're going to hold the 900th expedition in our hometown, actually, in Knoxville, Tennessee, where we're based. And I can tell you that for two or three days before that event, there are going to be a thousand people sleeping in their cars, sleeping in makeshift tents, and some of them don't even afford, can't, don't have a car, they're going to walk there. And uh, when we open the door on January the 31st, and I call out who's got number one, they're going to come in there by the thousand, and 70% of them are going to be for the dentist and 30% for the eye doctor, but they all need to see the medical doctors as well. Well, I can tell you that 36,000 people died in the United States in 2016 as a result of being uninsured. And that we base access to health care in this country on your ability to pay for it and not on your need for care. So I work in this large public system and every day people come to see us with advanced disease because they don't have insurance and they thought that they could manage their problems until times got better, but they got too sick and they had to come in to be seen. We need to make health care a right in this country. The reality is that we already spend enough money on health care in this country. We just allow too many people who are not involved in the delivery of health care to take profit from it. Last September, Sanders introduced his new single-payer health care bill, which has attracted support from at least one-third of the Democratic senators. And this week, in the days after the first anniversary of last year's historic Women's March, the organization Socialist Alternative held a forum January 25th on the Me Too movement. Chantel James has more. The Me Too movement against sexual assault, which has taken off like wildfire, was the subject of a program sponsored by Socialist Alternative DC at the Tenley Town branch of the DC Public Library on January 25th. A panel discussed the subject. Me Too, Socialist Feminism and the Women's Movement. The question, speaker said, was how to maintain a radical focus in a movement that, though conceived by a working-class black woman named Tarana Burke, was brought to epic proportions by wealthy Hollywood stars. Moderated by Matt, panelists Sarko, Alka, and Mamiya also gave criticisms of last weekend's Women's March. They paralleled criticisms of the Women's March with black feminist critiques of second-wave feminism of the 1960s and 70s, that it was too white and too neoliberal in focus. Mamiya drove home the point that women-led uprisings have been instrumental in bringing about real change in the past, and thus the need to make sure the power and momentum of Me Too is truly seized and harnessed. While the Women's March last year and this year was a starting point and a rallying point, we have a milestone to accomplish. Over the past few centuries, history has consistently unveiled one thing, that a woman-led uprising 
is the greatest tool we have to wipe out patriarchal framework of societies we live in, no matter the country. From the food riots and the Women's March on Versailles during the French Revolution of 1789 to the general strike held by women's workers in Petrograd on 8th of March during the Russian Revolution, to the boycott of segregated facilities and buses by African-American women during the U.S. Civil Rights Movement that helped defy white supremacy, it is evident that when the cage built by capitalist patriarchal society is rattled hard, the press is paralyzed and given to the rebellion. Sarko urged those gathered to hold elected officials and others accountable to a truly radical agenda. In order to really become militant, the capitalist structures need to see that we can actually shut things down. I really don't think that can happen without collective action. Same with this capitulation to the Democrats that keeps happening, that's happening in this movement now. We keep on saying, hey, we don't like this, we don't like that, we want these things to change, but there really needs to be that strong or else at the end of it. Because right now it's, do this or else we're going to vote for you. Nobody, they have no reason to change, and so it doesn't make our movements militant, and so it doesn't make them threatening enough to actually really, really change things. In order to really make things militant, it has to be that, or else we vote for another party, or else we stop production in a way that really is disruptive, and that you have to do something. From Tenley Town, this is Chantal James. Thank you, Chantal. Now, finally, in culture and media, net neutrality watchdogs are critical of a new series of full-page ads by AT&T calling for a new so-called Internet Bill of Rights. Activists say that this is a cynical attempt to obscure the fact that AT&T and other telecom giants supported last month's move by the FCC to gut net neutrality, which guaranteed fair and equal access to the Internet for everyone. And vacations and travel is also in the news as the tourism industry is blaming President Donald Trump's anti-immigrant policies and xenophobic rhetoric for a decline in foreign visitors to the U.S. since Trump took office a year ago. Also, several movies highlighted on On the Ground received Oscar nominations this week, including the horror comedy Get Out, the dramas Mudbound and The Post, and the documentary Strong Island and Faces Places. And finally, in culture and media, South African jazz trumpeter, composer, singer, and band leader Hugh Masekela joined the ancestors on January 23rd at the age of 78 after a prolonged battle with prostate cancer. His family said in a press conference this week that while the funeral will be private, the main public memorial service will be held on January 28th at the University of Johannesburg, Soweto campus. The family also plans to organize other international memorial services. And those are our headlines and happenings. When we come back, more international news with Gerald Horn. Stay with us. If there's any 
That was If There's Anybody Out There by the late Hugh Masekela on On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org. I'm Esther Ivarum. And now we will turn our attention to more international news, including news coming out of South Africa. For that, I'm joined by On the Ground contributor, author, and activist, Professor Gerald Horn. So, Gerald, in addition to the sad news about Hugh Masekela this week, it was also announced that in less than three months, residents of Cape Town, South Africa, could be the first city in the developed world to run out of water. Well, I was in Cape Town about 12 months ago doing some research, and I can tell you that the authorities there are focused like a laser beam, as well they should, on this very pressing problem of running out of water, perhaps by April. It's a classic case, as the saying goes, of water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink, since Cape Town is surrounded by water, the Atlantic Ocean, and of course, to the southeast, the Indian Ocean. I recall when I was living in Santa Barbara some years ago in Southern California, it had a similar problem, and what was established was a desalination uh, regime, that is to say, to turn ocean water into water that is at least usable for toilets and washing, And I assume that something similar is unfolding in Cape Town as we speak. Obviously, this bespeaks the depths of climate change and underscores the folly of the U.S. president seeking to withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord. But it should also be said that in some ways, Cape Town is just the canary in the coal mine. That is to say that you would be mistaken if you think that is only Cape Town that will be having water problems in the immediate future. I'm afraid to say that the way this small planet is going, this is going to become an endemic problem across regions. Also related to South Africa, uh, at a UN hearing this week, a South African delegate decried Israel as the world's last functioning apartheid state. And this was in a hearing to really look at the 50-year-long occupation of Palestinian territory. So I I don't know if you had some thoughts on on this hearing and what came out of it. Well, what it shows is that the African National Congress has not forgotten what some of us remember, which is that during the apartheid era, Israel was one of the major supporters of apartheid South Africa. Israel was said to have given nuclear aid to the apartheid regime for nuclear weapons, which could have been detonated throughout the sub-region, killing thousands, if not millions, of Africans, and perhaps killing many in the European minority as well. A number of Israeli leaders, including the former foreign minister, Abba Ibn, were actually born in South Africa. South Africa has a substantial population of Jewish descent, which has been known to be pro-Zionist. 
And we also know that Israel today envisions Gaza and the West Bank the same way that the apartheid regime envisioned its own so-called Bantustans, that is to say Siskai and Transkai back in the battle days, when these sprawling regions were fundamentally deprived of basic political rights and were administered in all but name from Pretoria, even though they were allegedly independent. We also recall that in 1990, when Nelson Mandela was freed and came to New York City, he was hounded at every turn and harassed by pro-Israeli forces because of his failure to denounce Yasser Arafat and the Palestine Liberation Organization. And yet, uh, in the last 24 hours, we have noted that the U.S. president has met in Davos, Switzerland, with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, and basically seeking to take off the table the idea of East Jerusalem as a capital of a future Palestinian state, I dare say that this, too, is folly. And I would also suggest to Mr. Netanyahu that instead of cavorting with Mr. Trump in Switzerland, he should be back home attending to his many legal problems that may sooner than later cause him to leave office. You know, one of those problems could be the ongoing case of the teenager Ahed Tamimi. And my understanding is that she's still being detained. She received a claim or, you know, notice um, most recently because she slapped a Israeli soldier after her cousin was shot in the head with a rubber bullet by an Israeli soldier at a protest. And, you know, apparently the soldier had just before the video was rolling, had slapped her. But in any case, after this altercation, she's been detained and she's still in prison and and apparently uh, receiving harsh treatment and her family is also being threatened. So this is something, you know, ongoing there. And, you know, she's just a teenager. Well, it's clearly indicative of the inhumanity of the Israeli authorities. She goes to court in about two weeks, a military court at that, not a civilian court. She may spend months or even years in jail. We're talking about a teenager, I have to underscore once again. And I should also underscore the fact that she is far from being alone. There are an estimated 12,000 Palestinian children arrested since the year 2000 by the Israeli authorities for similar, quote, offenses, unquote. I think it's also important to note that uh, as we speak, uh, Israel is about to thumb its nose at the United Nations and expel thousands of Eritreans and Sudanese for various immigration violations. Uh, Some will face certain death if they are returned to the land of their births. Rwanda has opened its doors to these migrants, fortunately, but one of the things that strikes me about this entire ghastly episode is that in the United States, you have those who routinely rail against the what they call, quote, identity politics, unquote, in the United States. But they have little or nothing to say about a state Israel based upon an exclusive ethno-religious identity. The politics is based on that ethno-religious identity, and unless you share that identity, you are fundamentally deprived of rights. It seems to me that the South African delegate was right on point when he characterized Israel as one of the last remaining apartheid states. Okay, well, we'll definitely be watching the case of Ahed Tamimi, you know, as her court date nears. 
and also, you know, watching what happens with the United Nations as well. So I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you, Gerald. Thank you. She is the president of Clue. Good morning, family. I bring you greetings and salutations on behalf of the members of the Coalition of Labor Union Women, Clue. I am a union woman, just as strong as I can be. I do not like the bosses, and the bosses don't like me. Which side are you on? Never mind, that's a rhetorical question. I know which side you're on. You're on the side of equal means equal. You're on the side of don't boo, vote. You're on the side of the dreamers. You are the resistors that say, hashtag me too, hashtag time's up, and inspired by the women janitors who marched and shouted, ya basta, enough is enough. And we're changing it to hashtag enough, period. Snap. Sister's not afraid of power. We're going to stop sexual harassment and sexual assault in our workplace in our schools, on our college campuses, in our homes, and in our unions. In 1974, 1,200 women met in Chicago to envision and demand equal opportunity for women in unions and to organize the unorganized. I stand on the shoulders of Olga Madar, of Joyce Miller, of Gloria Johnson, of Reverend Addie Wyatt, and all the founding mothers of Clue who taught me that a woman's place is in her union. Let me add to that. A woman's place is in the House of Representatives. A woman's place is in the Senate. A woman's place is in the White House, and we are coming for it. Are you with me? And those who think that the time of unions is over, let me ask you this. What is the first line of the U.S. Constitution? We the people, in order to form a more perfect what? A more perfect what? 
union. They didn't say organization. They didn't say club. They said union. And look at this union of people here today. Yes. Tell me what democracy looks like. We are not without black women. We are a collective in town from Baltimore. We are here because we believe that feminism does not happen without intersectionality. We are here because black women's need, voices need to be heard. We will be represented. We know that we matter. We know that we are the most educated. And we know that still we are at the bottom on a, a, man, a many number of issues, be it public health, employment, the list goes on. Public health, employment, education disparities, health disparities, reproductive justice, school to prison pipeline. Black girls are more than five times more likely to be suspended than white girls. The list goes on and on and on. Um, we all came together because we, we started as like a social group. But you know, black women, we get together and we want to change things. So we are happy to be here. We are happy to support. We are happy to make sure that feminism includes black women as leaders. Thank you. because black women are dying more than white women and other women from having childbirth within the first year. Their babies are dying more. I want to be able to have a child and not worry about that and then not worry every second of every day that that child is going to be murdered by not just police officers, because that's that's factual, that's happening, but by any other any other entity, right? Any other thing, you know what I mean? If I if I am a poor single black mother and I live in a specific area that doesn't have that doesn't have like a well-known grocery store, I live in a food desert and I'm setting myself and my child up for for failure. And the thing is like I'm not setting that up. That has been set up for me and I'm done with that. We need to end that. So, I didn't go to the march last year because I saw it as a reflection of mainstream feminism. They started off the march with white male speakers. It could have been two or three of them in a row. And then, they're talking about suffragists. They're giving us suffragist history without including the complicated history of who the suffragists were and what they stood for. So, um, I'm here to disrupt that and to challenge the status quo, and I would like to see the Women's March in the future be more reflective of radical feminism, black feminism, intersectional feminism, womanism, and less mainstream. 
My name is Shamarla McCoy. I'm a supporter of the Not Without Black Women movement. Started out of Baltimore, Maryland. This is a takeover. We are telling Congress, the government of the United States, local, city, state, federal, that you cannot win an election without black women. We're telling all big businesses, Facebook, Apple, all of you, you cannot make a dime without black women. And finally, we're telling the Women's March that you cannot have a conversation about rape culture without black women. This is a takeover. You have been listening to Voices from the Women's March held in Washington, D.C. on January 20th, 2018. After Elise Bryant of the Coalition of Labor Union Women, you heard members of the Not Without Black Women Coalition based in Baltimore, including Kimberly Humphrey, Samantha Kerr, and Shamarla McCoy. Thank you to Joshua Rose Schmidt of Grassroots D.C. for those interviews. After this break, we'll be right back with Richard Wolf. just tuning in this is on the ground on the ground show.org voices of resistance and alternative news from the nation's capital i'm esther Iverum. and now to explore the economics underpinning our headlines i'm joined by professor richard wolf his most recent book is capitalism's crisis deepens essays on the global economic meltdown and he's actually coming to dc to speak on wednesday january 31st 7 30 p.m at saint stephen's church in northwest dc welcome back to the show richard Thank you very much, Esther. Glad to be here. Well, there are so many urgent economic issues not discussed in the news, and I want to start with a buzzword that is like every other word in the headlines when it's not Russiagate here, and that is immigration. So much so that the fate of 800,000 immigrants brought to the United States as children and Trump's so-called plan to build a wall was at the center of last weekend's federal government shutdown. So I want to first ask you about the real economic issues behind the rhetoric around immigration, which it seems that Trump is pursuing as like more red meat to satisfy his base. You know, I know it's complex, but what are the highlights in terms of impact now and looming around immigration? Well, there's really no uh, nice or easy way to dance around the hard reality of what's going on here. So let me get right to it. I'm assuming that your listeners want to know what's actually going on. 
because if they wanted to know what the politicians are saying, uh, they can tune into the mainstream media and, and get plenty of that. Economically speaking, the issue of immigration is irrelevant. It doesn't matter. This is a country, the United States, of 325 million people. The number of quote-unquote undocumented immigrants, particularly from Central and Southern America, uh, is in the neighborhood, no one knows exactly, but in the neighborhood of 10 million people. Just do the arithmetic. The basic contours of the American economy are not affected by the presence or absence or growth or shrinkage of the immigrant population. It's just not sensible, number one. Number two, the people who are immigrants in this country are overwhelmingly poor people with limited means who do not in any significant way threaten the livelihoods of millions and millions of Americans. They do the least paid work, the work that paid the lowest amount of money. Their jobs are extremely insecure. They come and they go. Their employers know very well that they can force them to do all kinds of things because these people uh, fear to go to the police, fear the immigration authorities, and all the rest. They are vulnerable. They are abused. And Americans ought to understand it because the history of our country is a history of millions and millions of people coming from all over the world to the United States for 200 years, going through more or less the same experience. Well, if everything I've just said is true, why in the world would the Trump administration, and for that matter, Obama did some of this too, so he's not completely free of the, of the blame either. But Trump is clearly the one uh, going to town on it. What's going on? Why would he do this? And the answer really is very simple. There are sufferings of the mass of American people. That's for sure. They are not paid very well anymore. They are in debt over what they can possibly uh, afford to pay. They are being denied government services as the government uh, is cut back through tax cuts like the one on business uh, at the end of last year and so on. So Americans are hurting, and they've been particularly hurting since the crash of 2008. So Mr. Trump has hit upon, as his forebears have also, has hit upon a way of saying to the mass of the American working people, I hear that you're suffering, I feel your pain, and now let me tell you what we're going to do about it. We are going to beat up on the poorest, most vulnerable people in our society, the immigrants. We're going to tell a story that they are somehow at the root of your economic difficulty, and we're going to take dramatic steps by having ICE officials get them in 7-Eleven stores and yank them out of their homes, if they are lucky enough to have a home, and throw them back into a disaster society, Mexico, which can't absorb them uh, because it has tremendous poverty and unemployment of its own. This is a cruel hoax being perpetrated on the American people in order to get away 
with doing nothing fundamentally about the economic difficulties of the American people, but instead having what can only be described as a kind of made-for-TV political theater spectacle around immigration, with everybody talking about the details of it rather than facing the enormous deflection of people's concern onto something that doesn't matter so that the real problem, which is an economic system that doesn't work for most Americans, can get a pass so we don't talk about it, let alone change it. When you were describing that, it made me think of, uh, I wish I could remember the, the scholar who, who made this phrase, but this, it's almost like a psychic wage that people, perhaps in his base, are being paid by seeing other people put into a, a position of more misery than they are in. I mean, and it's actually really sad to think that someone would actually feel good about seeing someone else suffer more, but I guess that's just the state of where we are in this country. <laughs> where we are in this country. It's where we're being led by uh, a collection of people about whom, you know, I don't want to speak because I don't want to say the bad words that aren't supposed to be heard on television or on the radio, so I won't. But yeah, it's an extraordinary situation in which the same daily newspaper that tells us with great excitement that the the head of one of the biggest corporations, Amazon Corporation, Jeffrey Bezos, just passed a personal wealth of $100 billion. That same newspaper that has that at the headline, if you read just below that headline, will then describe the poorest of the poor immigrants from Central America who have been uh, stuck in a jail for weeks before being put on a dirty bus to be delivered back into a Mexico that has no work for them. I mean, it is, for those of us who, who fancy ourselves having some leftover moral or ethical sensitivity, it is a sign of a society that is completely spun out of control, doing things that, you know, generations from now on will look back in utter shame that this could have been possible. Now, I've, I've heard some of these uh, lawmakers, members of Congress on corporate media, and do you think that they really believe that there will be jobs for Trump's base because of the, all the deportations? And I'm wondering, like you said before, are these jobs that his base actually wants. Um, and then finally on that, I've heard one perspective that these private detention centers actually don't want the deportations because they're making a killing, you know, off of arresting and incarcerating men, women, and children right now. Yeah, all those things are true. Let's start with the one uh, with the jobs. The overwhelming, again, the overwhelming majority of jobs held by the kinds of people that are being deported are jobs at the bottom of the economic chain in our society. For example, large numbers of mega farms around the country use undocumented immigrants, I should say abuse the undocumented immigrants, to pick the lettuce and to pick the fruits and all the other food that comes on our table. If you, in fact, force these people out, 
as these large farmers are now complaining to Trump, these are the same farmers who supported Trump and who are now screaming at Mr. Trump because they need those workers uh, to farm the stuff. Why? Because Americans, American citizens, are increasingly unwilling to work under those conditions, unwilling to accept that level of pay, that level of abuse, and so on, which means that these farmers are faced either with the inability to harvest their crops and therefore their economic collapse, or they're going to have to offer the kinds of payment systems and conditions that will cost them a fortune. If they are forced to do that, they will go invest rather in technology, uh, machines that will do this work, because if they have to actually pay real wages, then those machines become economizing for them. The end result is Americans are not going to get those jobs. They're not going to be there. Either they're going to be done by poor immigrants or they're not going to be there. The same is true with the dishwasher in a restaurant in New York City, with the people who work in the car wash, with the people who do the, the, the move the bedpans around in the hospital, you're going to see an adjustment if these folks are not available. And it's either going to mean Americans accept a standard of living way below what they're used to, or they're going to be automated, these jobs, because they're not going to want to pay American-level wages. You know, I, I wanted to actually put in one other possibility because there are two things that I've heard on the media recently. Well, we know that people incarcerated are being made to work either for free or for a fraction of what they would be paid if they weren't in, in prison. And, and that because of the 14th Amendment, imprisoned people can actually be held in slavery, basically, right? And you actually reported on, you know, female firefighters, uh, people uh, in prison in California, women fighting these fires out there and being paid some paltry amount and putting their lives in danger. So I'm wondering if somewhere in the back of their minds, in, in terms of people who are who are thinking about this, they, they think that they can either get prison population force people like they, they already are, you know, working for private corporations in these prisons to work on farms. And I heard one Republican lawmaker, they were trying to say that African Americans were being hurt by illegal immigrants, you know, almost kind of insinuating that, you know, like black people could like, you know, work on these farms if the immigrants weren't there. <laughs> So I just I, I just wanted to throw that out because I was really struck by the kind of line of conversation that these people were having. Yes, because in a way, when they, in their euphoria of cutting taxes for big corporations and in their euphoria of making big, dramatic, fake uh, positions about getting rid of these immigrants and saying that Americans would have all these wonderful jobs that the immigrants have taken from them, telling this story, which was 90% nonsense, they now are confronted by their very supporters, big businesses who want the tax cuts and who don't give a damn one way or the other about immigration, but they care about their workforce. And so now these same politicians are being attacked by the people they thought they were pleasing or at least they were in part pleasing, 
And so they have to come up with other noise. And one of the things they say is, yes, we can make these people do your dirty work at low pay, etc., etc., whether they're prisoners or ethnic minorities. or Yeah, they'll say anything because saying this stuff is cheap, cheap talk. Just like the talk about getting rid of immigrants is cheap political theater, or as you put it nicely, the psychic wage, you're going to give your base what doesn't cost you anything because you're not prepared to make the economic changes that would really address their situation. The tragedy around immigration is, of course, that you're dealing with real people here. You are destroying the lives of millions of families. And for me, I watch as Irish-American politicians and Italian-American politicians and Jewish-American politicians and German-American politicians, all of whom come from families that were immigrants, are deciding that instead of honoring their ancestors, who had to go through the kind of denunciation that was untrue and unfair back then, instead of honoring that, are turning around and being the same irresponsible, cruel, hostility-ridden people relative to the latest wave of immigrants, as if they had learned nothing from history, as if they had no respect for what, what they're doing to human beings. I mean, it is extraordinary in this day and age uh, to watch this play out. It makes some of us depressed that the American people, or at least a significant number of them, can be fooled yet again by scapegoating the immigrants. That, that Again, the 10 million undocumented, if it's even that many, out of a population of 325 million people, it is a cheap way of demonizing the poor and the vulnerable, and all it's about is not making the basic changes without which you're not going to solve the problems of the real majority of the American people. Now, you, you touched on something that I want to kind of use as a springboard to go to the next subject, and, and that is how corporations have responded to the tax cuts or what corporations are doing around jobs. Because recently, I guess Walmart just abruptly announced that it was closing 63 Sam's Club stores. And a lot of people who worked at Sam's Club, that's their kind of big box distributor. They showed up at their workplaces the next day, earlier this month, and just saw a sign on the door, like a flyer saying that the store is closed. And a lot of those people were crying and there was a blip of coverage about it. But it reminded me of something that that you've covered in the last year, which I, I don't know if I really saw coverage anywhere else. And that's the fact that Last year, in 2017, 6,400 or 6,400 retail stores closed. So I want you to talk about that little a little bit. That sounds like, you know, the foundation for, like, the economy crumbling. You know, we're a buyer society. We're a consumer society. But we're not really hearing about it on the news. Well, let me, let me respond <clears throat> by mentioning two stories that illustrate the point that you're raising. Uh, the first one is the Kimberly Clark Corporation. They make all kinds of paper products, uh, Kleenex, you know, things that people are very familiar with. They announced 
and, and it was wonderfully honest, their press release. They announced that they are firing 5,000 workers because of the fact that people are not having babies the way they used to. They make a lot of uh, baby care products out of paper and, and wipes and things like that. And so they're, it's profitable for them to fire 5,000 people. But when you fire 5,000 people and you close factories and so on, it's very expensive. So they explain they're now able to cover the expense of firing 5,000 people thanks to the tax cut that the Republicans and Trump gave them uh, last month. So I, I want that to be out there to see, have people understand that if you give a huge tax cut of 40%, because that's how big it was, to corporations, 40% lower tax rate on their profits than they used to pay, you are giving them a bundle of money that they don't have to pay in taxes anymore, and they are free, that's the way capitalism works, they are free to use the money they don't have to pay in taxes anymore in any way they see fit. And the Kimberly-Clark people have seen fit to fire 5,000 people. It's a wonderful way of understanding who benefits from this tax cut and who doesn't. The second news overnight was the closing of at least 180 stores of the chain Toys R Us, a major chain in this country that provides toys, obviously. Uh, I'm sure many of the listeners to your program are familiar with it. And they have decided that they, too, will make use of the tax cut that they're going to enjoy, uh, thanks to Trump and the GOP, uh, in, in order to close all the stores that they find it profitable uh, to close. And now to the, to the larger question. Two things have happened in the American economy over the last 10 years that are crucial to the closing of over 6,000 uh, malls across the United States. By the way, we're expecting at least as big a closing of malls in 2018 as what we got in 2017. Why? Two reasons. Number one, the most important reason, Americans cannot afford to buy. As you correctly said a minute ago, we are a consumer-driven society in many ways, and if you do not pay the mass of your people rising wages, then they cannot consume more stuff. Well, Americans have gotten around that little dilemma over the last 20 years by borrowing more money than any working class of people ever did before. So they were able to keep up with the buying, not because their wages were going up, because they weren't, but by borrowing ever more money, borrowing mortgage for your house, borrowing to buy your car, borrowing through your credit card, and the really big growing one over the last 20 years, borrowing to send your kid to college. Those four ways of borrowing have made the American working class the most indebted working class on this planet at this time. And they've run out. Banks are no longer willing to lend to people the way they once did because everything collapsed in 2008 when people could not carry the debt anymore that they had accumulated. We are now right back to where we were in 28, and we're now 10 years later. We've learned absolutely nothing as a society, and there are simply not enough 
people earning enough money who are no longer able to borrow so they can't afford to go to the mall. That's the biggest single reason. The second reason is that people who can't afford to buy the way they used to become desperate to find ways of saving money. You know, I'm sorry, before you go to that one, can I just clarify? Because when we talked about the 6,400, that was actual stores. But I was wondering if you knew if any malls had closed because of that. What you see when you see the number of stores that are closing, in many cases, those stores are what we call anchor stores. They Mm -hmm. are the major store in a mall. Uh, For example, a Sears Roebuck or a Toys R Us or uh, any one of the Home Depot. It doesn't really matter. Whatever the big store is, most malls have one or two or three big stores, and that brings in enough traffic to sustain the smaller stores that are in the mall with them. If Mm -hmm. you close a big one, for example, these Toys R Us stores that I just mentioned, if you close a major store like that, um, you're sentencing to death not just the people who work in that store, but you're basically crippling the smaller stores because they no longer will have enough customers to survive. So what you're really seeing there is the collapse of the mall as a feature of American culture. The one that built up over the last 30 years is literally disappearing now. There's not a major town in America that does not have an empty mall, uh, a place where the weeds are growing up through the cracks in the asphalt because you can't sustain the mall when you have waves of closures uh, of major stores of the sort uh, that I just mentioned with, uh, with Toys R Us. Anyway, okay. the second factor is to go back. The second factor is Americans are trying to save money, and so they are using the distribution system of Amazon and other companies to buy on the Internet, mostly because they can get the same product more cheaply now delivered uh, than going to the mall. But it's not that they like Internet shopping. They don't, in fact. Most of the surveys indicate, for example, with the all-important item of clothing, that human beings would rather see how it looks on them and see how it fits rather than buy from a picture that you know is doctored in some Internet photo. So, in fact, people are giving up the shopping experience they once looked forward to at the mall where you can compare things and talk to somebody. They are giving all that up not because they prefer Internet shopping, whatever they say. It's because it's cheaper And that's what they need desperately to achieve, to try desperately to hold on to their standard of living when their wages have gone nowhere for 30 years and their debts are now so large that they are right on the edge of unsustainability. It's a wonderful index of why and how uh, a message I try to get across a lot, the recovery, the so-called recovery since 2008, has been a recovery for the banks, for the big corporations in many cases, but for the mass of the American working people, not at all, and nothing illustrates it as dramatically as the collapse of the malls, the closing of the stores, 
and the fact that everybody is now arranging for cheap goods to be delivered to their house because they can't afford any other way of getting them. Well, I'm going to have to leave it there. I've been speaking with Professor Richard Wolff. His most recent book is Capitalism's Crisis Deepens Essays on the Global Economic Meltdown. And he's coming to D.C. to speak on Wednesday, January 31st, 7.30 p.m. at St. Stephen's Church, 1525 Newton Street in Northwest D.C. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Esther. And I look forward to seeing you uh, next week. And that will do it for today's show. I want to thank my guests, Gerald Horn and Richard Wolf. Thanks to Chantel James and thanks to Joshua Rose Schmidt of Grassroots DC for their reporting. The music we played this hour included Is There Anybody Out There by Hugh Masekela and two selections by the group Song Rise, performed at this year's Women's March in Washington, DC. Our theme song is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital on Pacifica Radio. You can reach us and listen to complete versions of our shows on our website, onthegroundshow.org. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On the Ground Show and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. We almost have 500 likes on Facebook. Please help us get there this week. I'm Esther Averam. I'll be speaking and signing books Saturday, January 27th, 10.30 a.m. for Appeal's Historical and Cultural Literacy Series at the Thurgood Marshall Center, 1816 12th Street, Northwest in Washington, D.C. That's Saturday, January 27th, 10.30 a.m. For more information, go to appealinc.org. That's appealinc.org. Keep raising your voice. Thanks for tuning in. Peace.